legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Dive in to Gotta Watch the Tape, your new Cleveland Browns podcast of the Orange and Brown Talk feed from Cleveland.com. We dive into numbers. We dive into film. We dive into the Browns. Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Patsko. This is episode two, which means, I mean, if to follow along, if you're listening to this for the first time, you have to go back and watch episode one. We introduce the plot. We set up the characters. Very complex show. Or don't do that and just listen to us talk about football. This week... Two big breakdowns on your Cleveland Browns. Ellis Williams will break down Odell Beckham Jr. Scott Patsko will break down the Browns offensive line and the pass rush of the Washington football team, the team the Browns are facing this Sunday. We go about half an hour on each in-depth breakdown with film, with numbers. It's a deep dive. We had fun last week, and now Ellis will bring that to a screeching halt by telling all of us why Odell Beckham Jr. actually isn't that good. No, I'm just kidding. But we're, we're hey, we're going to tell you what the film shows us and what the numbers show us. And by us, I mean them. I'm just here to yell. Scott and Ellis are here to be smart football people. So we're going to dive right in to our first breakdown. We'll go about half an hour on this. Then we will come back with Scott's breakdown in the second half. This is building up to Sunday's game against the Washington football team. But for now, let's go dive in. Ellis Williams, the floor is yours. Doug, I, I'm glad you set me up like that because I think it's important to, when we're talking about Odell Beckham Jr., to keep what Browns fans want from OBJ and what they should expect from OBJ. That's, the, that's really the premise of this argument because what you want from OBJ is the flashy plays, the one-handed catches, going down sidelines, burning defenders, you know, 89-yard slants, things like that. And he's capable of that. But Kevin Stefanski is not going to ask him to do that in this offense. The number one thing Odell Beckham Jr. is going to be used in this offense for is exposing the deep ball. He did it last year in Minnesota with Stephon Diggs. Stephon Diggs was there to beat defenders deep and take advantage of the play-action pass, which we all know by now is the staple of Stefanski's offense. Next-Gen Stats has an interesting statistic that I like called Tay percent. It's essentially – a stat that measures how passes travel in the air and then what percentage of the player catches those air yards. So basically the higher the tape percentage, the further downfield a player generally is when they catch that pass. So a guy like Stefan Diggs last year had a 42% tape percentage of the Vikings deep balls. So basically 
42% of the time when they were going deep, Stephon Diggs is open downfield. You know, he only trailed players like Cortland Sutton of Denver and Michael Thomas of the same. Essentially, he was the big play receiver downfield, utilizing action passing. Odell Beckham Jr. is on that same trajectory right now. He's currently sitting, I think, at 48% tape percentage. Uh, it's eighth in the league. And there's guys, uh, Julian Edelman, Adam Thielen, Kelvin Ridley, Darren Waller, a tight end in front of him right now. And I don't think that that's going to withstand. But what will stand is Odell Beckham Jr.'s large percentage of air yards that he's going to receive from Baker Mayfield. We're, this isn't going to be an Odell Beckham slant offense. This isn't going to be Odell grabbing a lot of screen balls. It's not going to be a 8, 9, 10 catch Odell Beckham year. When Odell Beckham strikes, it's going to be off play action and getting behind the secondary. And it's going to be a few times a game. They're going to take those shots. But it's going to be catches, four catches. And essentially what I'm trying to say is the game that you saw Thursday night in a win against Cincinnati, he won on the left sideline on a double move, and then he won again on the left sideline, and they, the refs made a blown PI call. Those are two big plays. That's Odell Beckham Jr. That's what fans should expect this year. And it's evident in the first game and also the history that Kevin Stefanski showed his exact offense with a player of his exact mold comparing Odell Beckham Jr. to Stephon Diggs. So we can't, we're not going to hear his name as much. Like he's going to, we're, we're going to hear Austin Hooper and Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb and Jarvis Landry. And then we're going to hear Odell five times a game instead of nine times a game. I mean, you bring up Stefan Diggs last year, Diggs in Minnesota, 63 catches, 1126 yardage, 14.9 per reception. Odell 74 catches, 1035 on the yardage, 13.3. So he caught, uh, 11 more balls than Stefan Diggs, but he had a uh, hundred fewer yards. I, I guess, I don't know. Like I like hearing his name. I mean, I like, uh, you know, they're paying for it. So uh, I understand what you're saying, but Scott, like, does this, is this, oh, is this, does this sound right? Does it are, like, should fans, what, what Ellis is presenting this deep threat, fewer targets when he does get the ball, it'll make a bigger impact. Should fans be okay with that? And I guess they don't get to choose, but does that sound a reason, like a reasonable use of Odell in this offense to you? Um, well, first, we're going to hear his name regardless. <laughs> if he's not catching balls, everybody's going to say his name. Um, but, yeah, I think it's totally it, – whether or not it's what the fans want, I can't say, but it's what's going to happen. Um, I went through earlier before the season and looked at uh, the, the, the patterns that Baker threw the most last year, slants wide receiver screens. I mean, Beckham built his career on slants and that's not a, a, a route that you saw a lot from Stefanski's offense in Minnesota. Baker led the league in, in slants, 59 targets on slants last year. And Kirk Cousins threw that 21 times wide receiver screens. Again, uh, Beckham or uh, Mayfield was in the top five cousins threw that five times last year, wide receiver screens. We saw that in week one, they tried to get one to Beckham. I think it was early in the second half. And it just came off like they want to get him the ball, so they're going to do this. It just stuck out to me because I knew that that's not something that Minnesota did. So when, when Ellis is mentioning uh, getting Beckham deep, that's like deep crosses. Uh, in, a, in a post Ellis did earlier this week, he, he had a, a gif of, of Beckham running one of those. And I've used one almost exactly the same of Diggs running that and Cousins hitting him. It's those deep crosses that uh, – 
he didn't lead the league in them last year. Cousins didn't, but he was one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the league throwing that. So that's what you're going to see more from Beckham and, and probably even Landry this year than those wide receiver screens and slants. It's more downfield, and other people are going to be catching those passes closer to the line of scrimmage. So, Ellis, is your, is your presentation more that this is it, people? Like, this is Kevin Stefanski. This is what is going to happen. Get used to it. Or do you, do you also agree that this is, given this Beckham, this point in his career, is this the best way to use him? Or is it more like whatever is best doesn't matter. This is Kevin Stefanski's offense, and this is his role in this offense. Yeah, it's more, Doug, it's more about it, it doesn't matter how if, – if getting the best out of Odell Beckham Jr. is an offense's goal, I don't think that offense maximizes itself. And it especially doesn't maximize itself under what Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry are building here. They rebuild the front line, offensive line. They want to take the ball out of Baker Mayfield's hands. They, Kevin Stefanski wanted to take the ball out of Kirk Cousins' hands. Keep in mind, the Vikings threw the ball third fewest amount of times last year and still had a top 10 offense. They are, the blueprint's out there. You know, Kevin Spancy's not going to come and change up everything he was doing in Minnesota. Kirk Cousins wasn't throwing it. Baker Mayfield wasn't going to throw it. He, Baker right now, even with throwing the ball 39 times in a week one when they got away from themselves after two weeks, he ranks 26 in pass attempts. So when you're just not throwing the ball all that much, the opportunities for Odell Beckham Jr. have to come deep because you have to – strike when he's open and when he's most beneficial because like Scott said they're not throwing slant they're not wasting their time running wide receiver screen which there's plenty of data showing uh, really just a net play the wide receiver screen has come even though it's a it's an old football play so it, it still lingers in some of these playbooks so yes do we want to see Odo Beckham Jr. be who he was and who he can be in Madden sometimes sure that is fun I get that but we need to be practical here and take the data that Kevin Stefanski's given us. He's, he's showing his hand. This is how Odell Beckham will play. It's four yard, four catches, 74 yards and a score here and there, and, you know, it's five catches, 102 yards and no score. It's, it's, it's going to be exactly what they got against the Bengals because that is the only times you can really maximize him downfield because the threat of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt needs to remain the focus of this offense, or you're not getting those deep plays anyway. All right, so I do. I want to make sure that we get into that to to how Odell plays off the run game and how the run game plays off Odell. But I do think the media may have a role here because we le- we watch the games on the broadcasts, and if Odell doesn't get the ball, pe- the broadcasters start talking about why, why, like why hasn't he gotten the ball? Wow, look at this, he hasn't got the ball yet. When Odell doesn't get the ball very much in the game. All of us start asking and writing during the week. Why doesn't Odell get the ball? Why is the disconnect with Baker? Why is this happening? Just like we are all preparing, right? Everybody is telling journalists now, make sure people are prepared for the idea that there won't be a result on election night in the presidential election. We have to inform people ahead of time. So they're not sitting there on Tuesday night saying, who's the president? Listen, man, we got a bunch of mail-in ballots. It's going to be more like election week than election night. The integrity of the election is at stake. We have to preemptively tell everyone to chill out. The integrity of the Browns' offense is at stake. Do we have to preemptively tell fans and ourselves, chill out on Odell constant involvement, and if he doesn't get the ball for two, two or three series, it doesn't mean it's a failure. Am I, in comparing 
perhaps the most consequential presidential election of our lifetime with the Browns offense. Am I overstating that at all, Scott? Or is this how important this can be that we have to maybe recondition people for how Odell really fits in this? I think yes and no. It's not a cop out, hopefully, but yes from the fact that we, we it matters whether or not he's being targeted, but it matters more if he's getting catchable balls. That's one of the big issues last year is that he wasn't getting, I don't have the stat in front of me, I, he was one of the league leaders in, in passes coming his way that were not catchable. That was an issue last year. Plus, the Browns lost a lot. In week one, that was an issue this year against the Ravens because the Browns were having issues on offense. So after you make it through most of the first half, you look down at your at your stats and you see, wow, Beckham has not even been targeted yet. So that, yeah, that's an issue because your offense is struggling and you haven't targeted one of the players that you think is one of your most prolific offensive players. So that there's an issue. But I think going forward, you have to realize that, like Ellis said, he's not going to have those huge numbers that you maybe were thinking about when the Browns signed Odell Beckham. So maybe it's more efficiency. It's more making sure that you're targeting him and you're giving him stuff to catch and that the offense is actually working. It's not so much we have to target Beckham. That's the only way we can win. It's still the run game that's going to fuel this. But it was an issue in week one because, again, they were struggling and he was kind of MIA. All right. So just, and Ellis, you have laid out part of this again so far, but can you, is there an ideal now under this scenario, an ideal Odell game in your mind in the, again, the types of routes, perhaps how many targets there are, you were sort of saying, you know, four, four for one Oh nine or that kind of thing. What's the perfect, I mean, I guess, you know, it's a win, but what's the perfect Odell day in a Kevin Stefanski offense with Baker Mayfield as his quarterback? Doug, we saw it Thursday, four catches, 74 yards, a score, because what the fans fail to realize sometimes when it comes to players and talents like Odell Beckham Jr., they are just as important when they're not catching the football as they are with the ball in their hands. In, in the story I wrote about what to expect with Odell Beckham Jr., he had a critical play. Uh, I, I believe it was the first third down of the Browns' opening second-half possession. Uh, the Browns are facing third and nine, and – Kevin Stefanski isolated Odell Beckham Jr. to Baker's left with tight end Austin Hooper lined up tight as a traditional tight end. And they, I think they had trips to their right. But the, the formation was set up to isolate Austin Hooper to win one-on-one -on -one with a backer, Nickel Sadie, on an option route, either setting up hooking seven yards for that catch or breaking out. The reason Austin Hooper was able to break out, make a catch for 11 yards and move the chains is because on that play, Odell Beckham Jr. takes his man vertical. And if, if you go in the story, watch the tape, Beckham burns down the left sideline there and gives maximum effort for a play he probably didn't – he probably knew he wasn't getting the ball there. I mean, you never know as a receiver. That, that was always the most fun part. Like, okay, I, I, I'm going to bust this, this vertical because you never know. You know. No one wants to be that receiver who slows down and then the ball's there and you, you really look bad. But the point is that's – when you say what the perfect Odell Beckham Jr. game is, it's, it's so much less about the stat sheet and far more about how he helps Kevin Stefanski's marriage of both the run and pass. Because you can, you can make that even more of a micro point of a marriage between all the receivers and routes within each other. Austin Hooper does not open up for that 11-yard out and the Browns move the chains if Odell is thinking just about himself, 
how I can get off the line, the best way for me to get open. No, he had one job, and it was to get his man the F out of the play. And it's an, it was just an impressive – when I watched that, it, it's not like he did anything dazzling, but I, it, it was just him being a, a true professional and showing what a talent like that can do for the rest of the team. So that's why the stat line is so hard to predict because he's going to be open deep. He's going to get other players open underneath because of his deep routes. He's going to draw – pass interference and defensive holding penalties, which also don't really show up in the box score, but they move the chains. They give you first downs. And then it's going to open up running lanes for Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb as it continues to do. And all of that is, does not show up in the, in the, in the, in the statute. And so I like to see a 42 yard score. Yes. But that, that is those deeper downfield plays are going to take time as Baker and Beckham do get better at, at at a deeper passing game. So the idea, I mean, so the part that, you know, we've already been down this road two weeks into the season. It's like, Oh, would, like would, would they trade Odell? Or if he wasn't on this roster and if there will, if there comes a time where Kevin Stefanski and Baker Mayfield are in Cleveland and Odell Beckham is not on this roster, whether it's in one year, five years, 10 years, whatever, will they be not as effective if they don't have a deep threat? Because does that allow you to hang a safety over Austin Hooper or one of the tight ends or another receiver? Does it allow you to pull more guys down in the box and stop the run because you're not afraid of getting beaten deep? That to have this constant threat where if you let him get in a one-on-one matchup and you don't shade him and you don't acknowledge his skill, they should be able to, okay, then we will take that more. We'll take that how much of an impact does that have on the tight end passing game and the running game? Is it, is it, does it make it, you know, slightly better or is it sort of a game changing part potentially of this offense that everything else can flow substantially better just by Odell Beckham's presence on the field? Doug Odell's presence is make or break in the short passing game of this offense. And you don't have to look any further. And I know I talk about Minnesota a lot, but that's because the blueprint is right in front of us. The Minnesota Vikings last week, I don't know if anyone noticed, uh, they went to Indianapolis and got smoked. And now every, at least Vikings Twitter, can't stop talking about, you know, tanking for Trevor now. And this was a, just two weeks ago, this was a team that everyone thought would be making the playoffs, could contend with the Packers. And now all of a sudden it's tank for Trevor. And the reason for that, Doug, Stephon Diggs last week in Buffalo playing with your boy, Josh Allen. Ain't that right? Your boy, Josh Every, Allen. Everybody exactly. is throwing Josh Allen shade at me this week. It's unbelievable. And I'm here. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I missed, I missed the pick spot, so I had to get my one shot in. And, you know, I, I had to go there. But <laughs> Stephon Diggs had 153 yards receiving last week. The Vikings receiving core as a group, 119. Now, again, small sample size. Can Kirk Cousins and the Vikings figure this out? Perhaps. But you can't just – bake someone into Stefan Diggs and put them on the field in one week, turn a rookie into Stefan Diggs. Stefan Diggs didn't become Stefan Diggs until, you know, his third, fourth, fifth year in the league, probably year four is when he really established himself as one of the best route runners, best catchers in the game. If that's Cordero Hodge on the outside, trying to open up Austin Hooper underneath, no disrespect to Hodge. I know he, and he can get downfield. He, he does have that, that type of speed, but it's just something about what the presence of an Odell Beckham Jr. doing that, running that vertical route, the attention it merits compared to anyone else on this roster. And Jarvis Landry is best used underneath. You don't want to mess up his working underneath because Odell's going to open up Jarvis underneath too. So if you bring Jarvis outside just to be a decoy, now of course even more limited. So I understand that Odell Beckham Jr. probably isn't here for the long haul, 
with Cleveland. Uh, he, he talked to the media yesterday and really came to terms with, it's almost like he read my story. <laughs> it's like he came <laughs> to terms that he probably wasn't going to have big numbers this year. And I have a, I kind of buried it in the story, but I have a part where I say, you know, things didn't end well for Diggs in Minnesota. He wasn't happy with the offense. And a lot of that's to do with, I think, touchdowns. Stephon Diggs only had five red zone targets last year and he converted one of them and he had six little touchdowns and, you know, I think two or three of them came on like plays of 20 or more yards. I know he had a 43 yard, uh, yeah, 45 yard score. Those are the deep strikes that Odell Beckham will feast on. But as a receiver, sometimes you just want to be force fed. Sometimes you want to have red zone opportunities and easy touchdowns. You don't want to have to work so hard to score all the time, but that's what Kevin Stefanski asks of his, his Z receiver, his deep receiver uh, to go out, stretch the field and be, pretty selfless it's, it's a selfless position and Stefan Diggs played his role he played it well but he wanted out of Minnesota afterwards so I understand this is this is what I'm saying is this doesn't bode well for a long-term stay for Beckham in Cleveland but as long as he buys into the offense man is it exactly what Kevin Spansky needs to maximize his underneath passing game Scott I, I want to ask you sort of about managing this idea in roster management and how you fit the pieces together and how Andrew Barry spends the Browns money Odell was 26th in the NFL in receiving yards last year. This season, he has the 10th highest salary cap hit for 2020 among receivers. So he's getting paid more than his yardage is. How do you, I mean, and, and I don't know that there's a way, I mean, Ellis has cited some good stats in terms of, you know, air yardage and that kind of thing. But I, I don't know that you're going to find in the numbers hey, this guy's presence opens up the run game and opens up the tight end passing game, right? You can look maybe at some team numbers and figure some stuff out. Is this a good use of the Browns cap on, on Odell or on a big-time receiver like this who opens up the Browns offense? Or is it really fitting the offense and fitting the, the roster management? It's really not a great fit, but it's kind of where they are because Dorsey traded for him, now Andrew Barry's in charge, and that you make the best of it for however long he's here? Or could you see long-term that this is a worthwhile investment for the Browns because a, a big-time deep threat a receiver does make everything else go? Yeah, the whole time Ellis was talking, I'm, I'm asking myself, is, but is this role worth $14.5 million a year? Uh, and I don't, I don't know what it is, especially when you're paying Travis Landry roughly the same amount of money. I think we all went into this season thinking that uh, it very well could be Odell's final year here because they could uh, – move on from him and not get hit with any dead cap money next year. He's there are a lot of that. So um, they can kind of just wipe him off the books if they wanted to that way. Jarvis, I think goes down to like 3 million of, of, of cap money that would be left over. So uh, there is an out for both those guys uh, going into the 2021 season. And, you know, that's something that Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry have to figure out this year is, is Odell Beckham's role worth all that money. I don't, I don't know if you're looking for someone who has speed, who can, who can clear people out. Clearly this person wouldn't have the reputation and the history that Odell has, but for the things like the physical things that Odell is doing on the field for this team, uh, I have to believe they can get that for less than they're paying him right now or how much they are on the books to pay him over the next few seasons. And I do, it's interesting. And it's why I think, you know, a lot of us have said that this might be the best collection of skill players that Baker ever works with, because one of the reasons that you can pay Odell this right now is because like you're paying Nick Chubb peanuts. And when you get to the point where it's like, Oh, well, we're a running team. Well, how much are you paying your running back? I'm paying him like 2 million. 
Oh, and how much do you use your big time receiver? Oh, we don't use him very much. What's he's making? He's making 14 million, right? That's not going to, the, the roster management doesn't fit the offense, but it doesn't have to yet because Chubb's still on his rookie deal. When you get to the point where if you, if Kevin Stefanski stays here, you're a running team. You're also not paying Baker yet. Then you're not going to be able to afford to do this, but this is a rare window then mm-hmm. where it, Odell's money is not preventing them from doing anything else they want to do, at least on offense. Maybe it did on defense, but they have their two backs. They have the best, you know, they have a better running back pair than anybody. They still have their franchise quarterback, whether it's the right guy or not, who knows. They did everything they wanted to do on the offensive line, which we'll get into on Scott's half of the podcast. They spent money for the biggest tight end free agent on the market. Jarvis is still making a boatload more than Odell. So the money is not hurting them at all. Like they don't need to get, for lack quote maximum value out of Odell right now because they have enough other young guys on this offense but I do think it's interesting going forward but I think it also hammers home like don't do anything now let's ride this out Ellis right that you're saying okay maybe it's not the ideal marriage of scheme and player but he's here baby and he can help you he is helping you so that's right. Let's do this this year the best way we can do it, right? There's no reason to give like to give up on this now, right, Ellis? The, Doug, that's exactly it. Because Steph, players like Stephon Diggs and Odell Beckham Jr. aren't walking around on the streets as free agents. They're not on practice squads. They're star receivers in the NFL for a reason. And the Browns are in a very safe space with the cap and have no reason to panic or a knee-jerk reaction to have to get rid of a, a guy like Odell and basically trading him as long as he buys into the concept and the team. And that's what's so important, distinguishing a happy Odell versus a player who doesn't want to be here. If he buys in and it's cool with what he wants to be, then you keep riding this wave because there's only a handful of receivers in football that can do exactly what Kevin Stefanski wants out of that outside receiver and Odell's on that short list. So hope for this year then temper, just have the correct expectations. Exactly. This still can work. And I guess in the end, the the case that you're presenting Ellis is Kevin Stefanski got here in part, in large part because of his offensive acumen. And that acumen is tied to a specific way of playing football. So to ask Kevin Stefanski to say, Hey man, we know you kind of like to run the outside zone and you like to throw the tight ends, but you got Odell. Can you get him at least 13 targets a game? That, that just doesn't make sense. You've got to let the coach do what the coach wants to do. Eventually the roster will grow to be a perfect fit to what Kevin Stefanski wants to do, but it's not going to be a perfect fit in year one. So make the best of it, but the best of it is not Kevin Stefanski changing to fit Odell's ultimate skill set. It's Odell using his skill set the best way he can to fit Kevin Stefanski's offense. That is your, in your opinion, the best way for the Browns to win games this season. That's how they have to win games. It's how they're going to win games because this is really, this is Kevin Stefanski's team. Now, you know, we can say, Oh, Baker Mayfield's the leader here. Odell's the star or Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt are the focal point, but this is Kevin Stefanski's offense. This is, you know, his brand is, is on this now. And it's a tough ask for a receiver to be in this offense. I mean, it, you would never get anyone saying that, but as receivers, you want to catch the ball. You want multiple touchdowns. You want hundred yard games. And in this offense, you are asked to do a lot of the little things that don't show up in the box score and that aren't going to get you a you know, highlight reel type 
type clout, the, the type of attention that Beckham was used to in New York. But buying into it then maximizes everything Kevin Spansky wants to do, running the ball and throwing underneath. You need a threat deep, and that's Odell Beckham Jr. We should end there, but I'm going to ask one more question anyway. And, and this is maybe out of left field, Ellis, and I don't know how much when you did your film work on Odell that you looked at this part of it. I did, and, and again, through the course of this podcast, it's only our second episode. Again, Scott and Ellis, lots of work, lots of insight. Me, random dumb guy questions. But when I do a modicum of work, I'm going to make sure I talk about it. I went back and watched a game from Odell's rookie season on Game Pass. It was one of the, I think he had a game, like it was a game that had like 180 receiving yards or stuff. And every, it felt like every snap, he was shot out of a cannon. He was so dynamic. Every burst off the line, every cut, every movement he had was just filled with energy and danger. And it was like, I, you know, I wasn't really watching him type like that. Like that guy, Wow. And I just, I wonder about that with the Browns. I mean, everybody gets a little bit older. He has had some injuries he's had to deal with. I'm not asking him to be this exact same amount of dynamic player that he was right out of LSU. But when you watch Odell, just generally, you've talked a lot about what he's asked to do. Just his skill set, his cuts, his explosion, the way he gets off the ball, the way he tries to get away from defenders. There's another stat on next-gen stats that measures separation when, when receivers are catching the ball. I think he was like 93rd in separation last year. He's like 19th right now. It's hard. It's like 3.7 yards versus 3.5. And that can make a difference of like 40 spots in the list. So it's not a, I don't know that it's a super great stat to really tell you things, but how much is Odell still an explosive, dangerous player, regardless of scheme? Like, does he still got it? I don't know. Like, do you still see that when you watch on film? Or do you see that, you know, he's just maybe not quite that same guy. He's aged a little bit. He's worn down a little bit. Yeah, he's still got it. And the play I would highlight to show that is uh, I diagrammed it in the Odell Beckham story. Uh, It was on the Browns' first drive. Uh, Baker booted right and had a flood concept. He had Cordero Hodge deep, you know, 20 yards downfield. He had Odell intermediate, a 12-yard window, and then he had Jarvis Landry open as an outlet, kind of four or five yards downfield. Odell burned across the sideline. Fried, it was man coverage. Fried his man off the line of scrimmage, and that's still such a vital part of his game is his release game. There's not many people that you really can't press cover Odell Beckham Jr. or you're going to get made silly or you better have help behind him. Odell made his move at the line and just streaked across the field. And I do think Baker threw to the wrong guy, even though his read, any quarterback coach will tell you he threw to the exact right guy because it's high-low your first man's open, you hit him, you take that 20-yard game. Of course you do. But then as he starts mastering this offense, he's going to say, okay, the more, the bigger threat to the defense is actually Odell here crossing because he's still the burner, and now he's one-on-one with the safety. He had a catch um, going on a deep in route where he caught the ball, made a little juke, and then he had made that spin move. No, people don't just break out spin moves after catching a ball in the NFL. You tend to go down, you know, you, you, you keep your body safe. His awareness, I mean, think about it. He's not a guy who's out here getting concussed because he's dancing so much. He has so much field awareness still. Every move is so calculated by him. Odell still has it. It's about Baker Mayfield maximizing Odell and getting the, him the ball when he is that open rather than sticking to the exact playbook. That's how you maximize Odell, and I believe Brown fans will see flashes of that deep Beckham, that electric Beckham, the more comfortable him and Baker get in this offense going forward. All right. Temper your, I mean, like not temper, 
Have the correct expectations, people. In go. life, every day when you walk out your door, it's great to be optimistic, but don't be optimistic and then be mad if Odell Beckham doesn't have 15 catches for 211 yards. So I think that was a very valuable bit of info for Browns fans. Ellis, way to dive in, baby. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to dive in to part two of Gotta Watch the Tape. Scott Patsko, the Browns offensive line, the Washington defense. How is this matchup going to go on Sunday? Scott Ellis Doug will be right back on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape, Scott Patsko is going to dive in on perhaps the most impressive Browns offensive lineman so far. Veteran Joel Petonio, not him. Rookie first-round pick Jedrick Wills, not him. Huge free agent signing Jack Conklin, not him. NFLPA president fighting back from injury J.C. Treader, not him. The other guy who was much more than the other guy this year, the Red, not the Redskins, the Washington football team lined up next for the Browns. This offensive line has played so well. But Scott, dive in on maybe the most interesting story on this Browns offensive line two games into the season. Yeah, what, what seemed more plausible when the season began, that Wyatt Teller would be the Browns' best offensive player through two weeks or that Washington would pose the biggest defensive challenge to the Browns at this point? I mean, it would probably be that Joe Thomas was coming out of retirement over those two things actually happening. Yeah. I mean, Wyatt, remember Wyatt Teller, he replaced Eric Cush last year and did so well that the Browns came into this season saying, you know what, I think we need another right guard competition. And then that didn't even happen. Drew Forbes opts out. Nick Harris goes over to center and takes the place of Treader during camp. And Wyatt Teller just gets the job, you know, by default. And then he goes out, and now he looks like Kevin Stefanski made this offense just for him and not necessarily to make Baker Mayfield better. Uh, through two weeks, well, last season, as a run blocker, Wyatt Teller didn't even get above 60 from PFF. And just so you know, 60 is backup level. So even through his first two years in the NFL, he didn't get to starter level as a run blocker. This year, he's leading all guards in the NFL. 91.9 is his grade. And he leads all offensive players on the Browns in offensive grade. Fun fact, number two in offensive grade for the Browns this season, David Njoku. So like two guys who were like just run through the ringer this offseason – yeah. They pretty much uh, performed at a high level, uh, the highest level on the offense so far. But I feel Teller, like you are setting up Wyatt Teller to ask for Odell money now. We're going to have a $14 million right guard in Cleveland by the time Scott is done with his breakdown. I think so. Uh, so he, he's, played a, he's played a big role in, in a lot of the runs that we remember. Like the first week, uh, second quarter, Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt had back-to-back 20-yard runs. Those were both behind Teller. Uh, Nick Chubb's first quarter touchdown against the Bengals, he kind of teller just planted Christian Covington in the ground and, and allowed Nick Chubb to get around. Even some of the plays that are going to be listed in the play-by-play as going to the left are actually behind Teller because the whole offensive line is moving over to the left. Nick Chubb or Kareem Hunt will then cut back behind the block that is created by Teller. So, again, like you said, they had all these changes to the offensive line. You added Wills, you added Conklin, and you have the mainstays in Treader and Batonio. But so far this season, Teller might have the biggest impact on the 
on the uh, the success of this running game, which is obviously one of the best in the league. And and so I don't know. It's like is is Wyatt Teller going to end the year as the highest graded right guard in the NFL? I mean, I don't even. That's not really the point. It, the idea to, is, I mean, Ellis, I. I was worried all last year. Like it feels like a lot of times in football, it's like, well, you have three or four guys who are really competent, but if you have one dude not doing his job, everything gets blown up. This was the projected weak spot. As Scott said, they're having a random competition and you, you did have two established veterans and then you had two big time moves to fill the other holes at tackle. At the very least, it feels like this is not a weak spot, which means there probably isn't a weak spot on this offensive line. And even if Teller doesn't stay at a Pro Bowl level, if they are good at all five spots, how much different is that than being good at four spots and having a below starter level guy at even one starting spot on the offensive line? Yeah, it completes the unit. Your offensive line really is only as good as all five parts or your weakest link, if you will, because defensive lines are now too where we, we saw uh, the Browns do it against the Bengals. They lined Miles Garrett up over the, the Bengals' right guard. I mean, that's just unfair. They knew he's a backup right guard, and rather than just having him go, you know, against Larry Ogunjobi, who is not Miles Garrett, you expose the matchup. So the teams are able to do that, especially against quarterbacks who don't do well with pressure right in their face, who would be Baker Mayfield. And the what is so interesting about all this is, one thing that is really just impossible to predict when we project the Brown season going forward is player development. Who will get better from year one to two or whatever year they're in of their process of becoming ultimately their ceiling. And it's a testament to Wyatt Teller. Baker Mayfield talked about who has put on a bunch of weight this offseason. He looks like a big guy. And then Bill Callahan, too. When you invest in a coach like that along your offensive line, you're going to get better production out of talent. So between him and someone like Denzel Ward, who we'll probably talk about on a later pod, who seems to be making that jump now, that's a, those are the types of uh, next-level jumps that you can't – are difficult to project when you're trying to think about this Brown season going forward. But now that it's pretty safe to say Wyatt Teller is a startable and probably above starting-level right guard right now, the Browns might have the best offensive line. Uh, you froze a little bit there then. Did you, were you saying the Browns might have the best offensive line in football? I didn't stutter unless it was my Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> they might have the best offensive line in football, Doug. I just want to make sure we got that. Again, I, I said 10 and 6. You, I, I'm feeling like I might have gone low. I feel like I might have gone low. So I want to make – I think I maybe – it might have slipped out on the first – episode of this of, of gotta watch the tape that i said uh i think i might have said what did i say exactly did i say john dorsey sucks at drafting i think that might have been what i said john dorsey pulled this guy out of buffalo's scrap heap in the last week of the preseason last year for what like a swap of fifth round picks or something it was like for nothing scott right mm-hmm. yes so i just want to give shout out to jd credit to that but Scott, you have made this point a couple times, and I'm just, I just think it's such an interesting point. And we're talking so much on this episode about the pairing of talent and scheme. Does it turn out that, that this scheme that Kevin Stefanski is running brings out the best of a certain type of lineman? Is it that Wyatt Teller is, is flourishing because of what he's being asked to do? Or does it feel like he has just developed as a player no matter what? You've mentioned that. How do you really see the pairing of Kevin Stefanski's offense and Wyatt Teller's skill set? 
Well, you want to be a, you want a guy who's mobile and can move, obviously, because everybody's kind of moving as one. You're doing a lot of more, everything's pretty much run blocking. So that is a good fit for him. But I thought the interesting thing was Mayfield this week talked about how much muscle mass Teller put on and kind of bulked up, which kind of goes against maybe what we thought uh, an offensive lineman should be doing in this scheme, but it's worked for Teller. And, you know, last year behind him, 3.9 yards a carry going at right guard this year it's 8.4 so a lot of that has to do I think with with who he's playing against um because when you're running behind right guard you're not just running behind right guard you also have to figure who, who's who's that tackle and, and how are they performing and and Chris Hubbard was not good at all in run blocker last season so that I'm sure has boosted Teller's production and, and how he plays but it's clear that he put in the work this season to become better and it's clear that this offensive scheme works for him uh, the very first play of the season, the very first running play of the season behind right guard, uh, I think it was Nick Chubb, no gain. And that looks bad for Teller. But if you watch the tape on that, he blows away his defender. I think it was Brandon Williams and just pushes him way back. Jack Conklin, meanwhile, falls to the ground off his block. And, uh, and, and, and I think it might've been Derek Wolf, but whoever it was uh, gets the tackle for no gain. So it looks bad for Teller, but clearly how that right tackle plays next to you affects how good, you know, they're going to, how good you're going to run going in your direction. So he's getting the job done. That's the bottom line here. So you did just mention Scott, who you go against, right? And so the Browns did not not move the ball very consistently against the Ravens, certainly move the ball against the Bengals, this Washington defense that's coming in. I mean, you know, me, the layman, my, I go, my eyes go to, Chase Young, pass rushing defensive end, having watched three years of him at Ohio State. But you have pointed out that Washington also does stop the run. So I had thought, hey, listen, man, don't let Chase Young, you know, tear Baker Mayfield's arms off. Just run all day. I, I mean, maybe Baker will only have 15 passing attempts or whatever. Just, just slam the ball, give the ball to Hunt and Chubb, see if they each get 20 carries. But actually, dumb guy, not quite that easy based on what Washington, what Washington has done against the run the first two games. No, everybody's going to point to all the sacks. I think it depends on uh, what site you're looking at, either 11 or 12. And a lot of that came against Philadelphia, which had, I think they were missing like three offensive linemen. But clearly the Washington's pass rush is a big deal. Um, but against the run, the Eagles only had 3.4 yards per carry by their running backs. The Cardinals, 3.8 yards per carry. Now, Washington couldn't really solve Kyler Murray. Uh, he ran all over him for 67 yards, and that was a big reason why uh, uh, the Cardinals had success and won that game. But Washington still had 20 pressures uh, on Murray in that game. So clearly the pass rush is a big deal, but that run-stopping ability is there. Uh, Chase Young, yeah, he's having an awesome year as a pass rusher, but he's also performing at a high level against the run. Uh, I know against the Cardinals, uh, he was getting out and, and stopping screens as well. So he's able to do everything. He's pretty much making his case for rookie of the year right now. Um, but the Browns, their biggest strength, think obviously, is the run. Chubb and Hunt each averaging uh, almost six yards. Well, Chubb's almost six yards a carry. Hunt's actually almost seven yards a carry. So you got these two, these two strengths here that are going to go up against each other. Um, and the Browns haven't really faced a run defense like this yet. Uh, Baltimore's interior linemen have not played very well this season. Even in their win last week against Houston, and uh, a yards per carry rate, they did not do well. Um, the Bengals obviously have their own issues. They were without two of their top defensive linemen uh, when they came to Cleveland. So this is also 
the biggest challenge for the Browns offensive line. Um, and we're going to find out if Teller's the real deal. Um, we're going to find out it's his biggest challenge, but you could also say the same thing about Conklin and Wills because clearly they're going to, they're going to be up against it on the outside, but uh, Washington's run defense. Don't, 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 for, don't sleep on it while you're watching uh, all the, all the, all the high praise for their past defense. This, this ties now back into the first episode where Ellis, you made the case that the Browns should run the ball with their tailbacks more than any team in the NFL. I do think week one, when Washington beat Philadelphia, I think Miles Sanders, the Eagles tailback was out for that game. Um, Kenyon Drake and Chase Edmonds and the guy, you know, the guys they played in Arizona as tailbacks, you know, they're not, they're not Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. Kyler Murray clearly was the biggest run threat there. Ellis, I think, I mean, I think it's smart. Again, we want to warn people, if you're listening to this before the game was played on Sunday, you know, don't make assumptions that Washington's defense is only about a pass rush. But this also, Ellis, feels like the kind of game, if this run game for the Browns is who we think it is, if they are who we think they are, then you have to be able to run on Washington. You have to have Chubb and Hunt carry this offense. Wyatt Teller has to keep playing well, or maybe they aren't who we think they are. But do you have confidence, Ellis, that this still will work against Washington in week three, this run game? Yeah, I, I am confident in it because this is the, the focal point of the offense. And essentially, Doug, it has to work or the Browns don't win this football game. And that is, it doesn't need to look like the Cincinnati game. They don't need to average, you know, seven yards a carry, you know, 8.6 from Kareem and like six from Nick Chubb. And they are going to face more third downs than just the eight they face against Cincinnati. I expect more of a, you know, 19 carries for 74 yards and a touchdown for Nick Chubb and 15 for 68 for Kareem Hunt, because this Washington defense is, is a lot more formidable, both passing, getting after the quarterback and stopping the run than the Bengals. But the Browns need to stay dedicated to that philosophy. And just it's going to be a slow move the chains type of game because the Washington offense isn't going to kill you. And the Browns offense wants to run the football. So as long as they're converting those third and fives, third and fours, and stay on the field, I'm expecting slow drives, lots of runs, and they're just going to methodically move the ball down. And field position will play a huge part in this game against Washington. I'm, I'm making. It's not going to be all that fun of a game, but it will be close and the Browns will be running the football. I think that's a very good point. I think it's very possible that anybody who is not a Washington fan or a Browns fan will turn this game off. Like I, it really, it really might be a slog. I don't know that the Washington offense, you know, I think Dwayne Haskins, the former Ohio state quarterback is still finding his way a little bit. Terry McLaurin can be a big play receiver, but I would imagine the Browns defense. Well, I, I think, um, should look pretty good in this game. And then again, it might just be ground and pound for the Browns. Um, so, but again, if, if they can't do it against, if Washington turns out to be too tough a test and they can't move the ball, that does not bode well for any kind of playoff push. Because I do think, Scott, the point of, listen, this, this is probably the best run defense they faced yet. But this, we're not talking that like Washington's run defense is one of the best five run defenses in the NFL or something like that, right? No. Well, they are good against uh, – what Washington does well is they avoid getting – letting the other team get big runs. Uh, there's a, a metric that Football Outsiders does of second level and open field yardage, and the Browns are in the top three offensively in both of those. Chubb and Hunt 
get a lot of runs, five to 10 yards, 10 plus yards. Uh, Washington avoids that. They're seventh and eighth in those two categories. So they're not allowing running backs to kind of get loose and, and break off those big plays as much. Uh, the Browns defense actually is even better against that, but, but Washington does that well. So, um, you know, grounding and uh, just kind of keep, you know, if you, if you keep pounding your running backs in against Washington, you, you would think that Chubb and Hunt eventually are going to break those. But what that also does is avoid the one thing that Washington is really used to its advantage, and that's getting turnovers. Um, so many of their points this season, so many of their drives this season happened, started in the other team's territory because they get turnovers and, and turn those into scores. And if you're controlling the clock and controlling the ball with Chubb and Hunt, you're limiting <laughs> Baker Mayfield's opportunity to keep his interception streak alive. Um, and you're, you know, you're putting yourself in, in, in a position to win this game. And Washington has just thrived off that. And so getting the run game going and making sure that you're keeping up with Chubb and Hunt is going to kind of give yourself a better opportunity to avoid what Washington has, has, has used to, to not just win a game, but score. This is obviously valuable information on the Browns run game and their offensive line for this weekend. But I do want to pull back a little bit. What we just talked about with, with OBJ and what is the long-term possibility or not possibility with him in Cleveland. Scott, when, when, if they have settled this right guard spot, again, with what we just said, Conklin at right tackle, the money he got, he's not going anywhere for a while. Wills, they hope Wills is the next Joe Thomas and he's at left tackle for a decade. Betonio and Treader are veterans and they've been around, but I, I mean, they're not, they're not like on the back end or anything yet. Does this, is it possible that this is the offensive line that we're going to see for the first three, four, five years of the Kevin Stefanski era? Fingers crossed my lips to God's ears. A Browns coach being here five years. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Wouldn't that be weird? Um, oh, like is, is that what we're talking about here? Because we are looking at this offensive line and thinking, man, they're playing well. But th- they also, if right guard settled, it feels like a lot of other spots are locked in. Are these our five that we're all going to be watching for a long time here? Uh, I'd be shocked if they keep this line together that long. I think okay. Treader. Thanks um, a lot. See, here we go. This is the theme of this podcast. I'm Excited, Doug. I'm here to solve problems. And it's like, well, I mean, it, it worked for a week. I don't think it's long-term, though. All right, talk about how J.C. Treader's contract is too much, and they're going to move in Nick Harris in a year. I get it. Go ahead. Right, right. I mean, that seems like the obvious move here, I think. Uh, but I think, the, you know, obviously uh, Conklin and, and Wills could be here for a significant amount of time. I, Teller's doing great now, but uh, having a, a line together for, for, for years at a time is just – I, I'm not sure that can happen here. I think I think this is uh, an offensive line that you're just going to see people kind of start to rotate out. How long is Petonio going to be in that position? Petonio has had a lot of a lot of uh, injury issues in the past. Now he's healthy this year, knock on wood. But um, again, I it would be nice to think that they found a, a five man unit that can stay together, and you're not going to be going into the season wondering who's going to be at this position or do we have competition here. Um, they avoided that largely this year. Like you knew from day one of camp pretty much who was going to be playing where, even though JC Treader was hurt, you knew he was coming back. So I think if anything, like you said, Harris moving into Treader's spot is probably something we're, we're going to see in the near future. But other than that, I mean, I'll commit to next year. I'll commit to next year with this five beyond that. I'm not, I, I wouldn't say anything. I'll commit yeah, to really, November. I'll commit to November. Uh, yeah. Real, ahead, quickly, real quickly. And it, it 
the names in Doug's five-year trajectory here where Kevin Stefanski is still the coach and we're living in a, a dream scenario here in Cleveland, right? Um, it's Jedrick Wills, it's Jack Conklin, it's Nick Harris. Those are the names. That's the foundation of this offensive line. And that's no disrespect to Treader, Batonio, Teller. It, they're just in different parts of their career. But when you're talking team building, those are your three staples. Those pieces cannot be moved, cannot be damaged. And you figure out the rest as this – and we really should mention how quickly – Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry turn this offensive line around. And so now in just these one off season, they go from, it was the Browns weak point to now it's biggest strength. That's a front office job that is, is tough to do. And really you can only get done in Madden by trading with computers that are giving you better trades. And somehow Andrew Barry found a way to do it in, in real time. And his foundations clearly is Wills at left tackle, Conklin at right tackle and Kevin Stefanski needs a center. He can trust the rest will take care of itself as they prove with a guy like Wyatt Teller. You mentioned Drew Forbes early on here, Scott. That was a guy that I think some people thought, oh, might that be a late-round steal for the Browns? He opted out, and everybody has to make their own personal decisions in the coronavirus about what's right for them. Um, is that a guy that you still could see, you know, what Ellis is talking about, maybe, you know, what you said, if, if the guards, for instance, aren't long-term solutions here. Forbes, a young guy. Have we seen enough to still think that Drew Forbes might have some kind of role in the future on this offensive line for the Browns? I don't, I don't think we've seen enough. Um, he was a guy who came into the right guard competition late last year, and then he got hurt. And then he was, you know, gone for most of the year. So, I mean, he's, he's a guy who was deemed too small to play tackle. They moved him inside. He's got good size and a guy who can move. So you would think that he would fit in well with this offense, but I don't think you can say that you, we know enough about Drew Forbes to say that he's, he's a definite part of the future here. So I want to I end with this because I, I do like – this is facts, film, numbers. This is hardcore stuff. But there is sort of that other, uh, you know, intangible mumbo-jumbo stuff that floats around that we want to limit here. We want to limit here. Sometimes we can – general football talk can range too much into that. But, Scott, how do you think an offensive line playing well affects Baker Mayfield, both in the, hey – there's not a dude up my butt, you know, like that matters. But is there a, do you think any increase in confidence just before the snap that because, hey, the last two games I've been protected pretty well, as I'm taking this snap and as I'm preparing to take my reads, I'm not going to have happy feet. I'm going to stay locked in the pocket. I'm going to believe that I'm going to be protected. And that helps make me a better quarterback. What does an offensive line, this offensive line with Hubbard and Robinson gone with Teller playing so well, what's the effect on Baker, you think? Oh, it's huge. I mean, well, I think the Bengals had five pressures on him last week. And when you're able to do what you want to do and not have to worry about um, moving around so much in the pocket, even though they've used him a lot in rollouts on purpose, you, you want Baker Mayfield running because you designed it that way, not because he's running for his life. And we saw that so much last year. I think it was Chris Hubbard led the, the Browns in pressures, 35 or 36 allowed last year. Baker Mayfield was second because he ran himself into so much trouble. Uh, I think it might've been the Tampa Bay game in the preseason when it clicked in his head that I'm in trouble here. My tackles cannot get the job done and I'm going to be running all season because that's what we saw. Uh, he created a lot of his own issues. So this year uh, it's clear he has a lot more confidence in, in Wills and Conklin and he's not, he's not putting himself in those positions. And I think also Stefanski is making sure that 
he's putting Baker in situations where when he is running again, he's running on purpose. So, um, but that's huge. Yeah. If you, if you know that, that you're going to have X amount of, of seconds to, to survey the field and figure out what you want to do, that, that can change your whole offense. Ellis, I feel like you, the, for you, the jury is still out on Baker and what he is going to be as a quarterback. If he is going to be good in Cleveland, he's not going to be a guy who's going to pull plays out of nowhere with his legs like Josh Allen or Kyler Murray or Lamar Jackson. He's not a huge giant guy in the pocket. Is it a must? Is this a must if Baker is going to be a long-term franchise quarterback in Cleveland that he has an offensive line like this? That again, when we're talking about roster management and allocation of resources, is, is this area number one that if Baker doesn't have five dudes on the offensive line, he can believe in he's never going to make it? Yeah, Doug, I, I like the question. It, it flashes me back to the first time you and I were on a podcast, this, this, this little podcast called Takes by the Lake. And then just, I was, you know, I, was, ah. I had no idea what I was doing back then. I just knew to Cleveland and Doug Lay Maurice asked me to come on and we talked Trent Williams and the Browns offensive line and if they should make a trade. The reason I'm reminiscing is because my point a year ago was in, until you solidify the offensive line, you don't get an accurate read on what Baker Mayfield is. You need to eliminate all doubt that – it could be the stuff around him that is the issue and not Baker Mayfield. The excuses needed to end. And that's exactly what happened with Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski this offseason by allocating all of the top resources they did to that unit and even now the development of a player like Wyatt Teller. It, this is now on Baker. We, you get a clear picture of the quarterback he's going to be and his essential ceiling in the NFL. And what that is is a quarterback, at least from what I'm seeing so far, is a quarterback – that can do the right things and make the right throws because he has the arm talent and the accuracy to do so when everything else in front of him goes right and goes perfect. And that's a testament to the offensive line. It's not an excuse or a, a, a knock on Baker, but he isn't a, a secondary playmaker, meaning when the play breaks down, he can escape and go make something happen in a, a Kyler Murray, Patrick Mahomes, even a, a Derek Carr seeming to do it now. It's, it's, that Monday night game was impressive. Um, that's not Baker Mayfield. So the line needs to be exactly the unit it is right now to get a clear assessment on what Baker Mayfield's going to be. And then, as I said this week, with each interception he throws, it makes Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski's decision this summer on what to do with Baker more difficult because the excuses aren't there. This is ba every throw Baker makes, that pocket is going to be clean 80, 90% of the time. Now it's about between the ears and his decision-making on the football field. Scott, as we finish up this topic on the Browns offensive line and the run game against Washington, what's your read on this? Do you think you've laid out the case that, you know, Washington has a pretty good run defense. You've laid out the case that Wyatt Teller is a key to this Browns offensive line performing at a high level. What do you want to add before we wrap this topic up? And how do you think this will play out on Sunday? I do think the Browns will be able to run the ball. I think they're better at running the ball than Washington has been at stopping it. And like I said before, Washington hasn't seen an offensive attack like the Browns yet. Um, but I do think that Baker needs to be efficient in his throwing to make that work. Um, Chubb and Hunt have both seen about 25% of their runs against eight man fronts. So clearly they're, they're having success, you know, even when people are putting a lot of people up on the line of scrimmage, but man, I want to see a screenplay. I think this is the week when maybe you see some of those uh, Philadelphia and Arizona did some of that against Washington, but especially in Philadelphia's case, it seemed to be more like desperation. Like we need to get the ball out of Carson Wentz's hands quickly. 
Baker Mayfield, I think the Browns have been doing that anyways. Uh, but I think when, when you come to face Washington, that you, you're going to want to get the ball out even quicker. You don't want to have Baker standing back there and letting Chase Young come around the end, Montez Sweat come around the end. You want to get the ball out quick. So I think maybe this is the week we see wide uh, running back screens, maybe tight end screens, um, maybe those passes, those dump offs right in front of the line of scrimmage. So just to get it out quick and to make sure that the passing game is still a part of this because everybody knows the Browns are going to run the ball. Washington knows it. This is, you know, again, the best defense they've, they've faced as far as run defense. So you got to have the ball out quick and Baker Mayfield has got to have something in the past game to make everything work. So not to, not to give people bad vibes going into this Sunday game, but it was week five a year ago when the Browns played a San Francisco team that was coming off a really bad year and had selected an Ohio state defensive end with the number two pick in the draft and Nick Bosa in that game against the Browns. That was one of the early games where you got a sense of how good Nick Bosa was going to be. Maybe how good these 49ers were really going to be and the 49ers wind up in the Super Bowl. I'm not saying that Washington is going to the Super Bowl, but we're early in the chase young cycle here. Washington had the second pick in the draft. They pick an Ohio State defensive end. I have said along the way, I think Chase Young was sort of the peak of the Ohio State defensive end assembly line that I think he might have the best combination of athleticism and technique even higher than what Joey Bosa and Nick Bosa had, which is, I mean, Nick Bosa was the defensive rookie of the year last year, and people thought if he hadn't gotten hurt, he might have been the defensive player of the year this year. I think, I think Chase Young's ceiling might even be a half step above that. That's how good Chase Young might be. So you have to have a plan for that. You have to have a plan for as good as Jack Conklin and Jedrick Wills might be. He's, Chase is going to win matchups. You have to have a tight end to help with that. You have to double team him. You have to get the ball out of Baker's hands. Or we've seen it, and we've seen it at times with Miles, and I don't – I still, and maybe I'm wrong on this, and I'm sure this could be a topic down the road. I still feel like sometimes Miles, yes, you look at the stats. He has a bunch of pressures. He's very productive. It still feels like sometimes a guy like Nick Bosa blows up a game, just blows it up to a slightly greater degree than Miles does. I, maybe I'm completely wrong on that. I see Ellis rolling his eyes, maybe. I think that might be. Miles is very productive snap to snap. There are times, and this is maybe the layman thing, where I would just like to see Miles Garrett just destroy an offense. So I'm not saying that Chase Young is going to destroy the Browns' offense, but I think if you don't have a plan to make sure he doesn't, screens, right, Scott, screens are great, then I think maybe he could. So it's a great test for this Browns' offensive line. Ellis, I will give you a chance to say something here because you've been leaning your face into the screen. Yeah, it just, the, I'll tell you what the Browns' plan won't be for Chase Young. They're not going to ask Austin Hooper to one-on-one block Chase Young on a play-action pass intended deep for Odell Beckham Jr. that uh, a corner is going to pick off deep because that's one of the best defensive ends going against a tight end. And I'm referring to what Nick Bosa did to the Browns last week on Monday Night Football. Um, just mind-boggling pass-blocking assignments there. You're right, they will have not only Conklin or Wills They'll have other tight end working with him. This is, again, one of the most sound pass protection teams just from a, a preparation standpoint. And talent on the field, of course, matching Chase Young. So I guess what I'm leading to saying is don't expect a, a big Chase Young game. I, I don't see it in the cards. I'd be pretty surprised because then we have to talk about the coaching mistakes because the talent's already there. 
but I trust this staff to put the players in the right spot. So I think they're going to be able to contain Chase pretty well. Does he get a sack? Sure, maybe, but he's not going to be wrecking the game like Nick Bosa did on Monday night last week. Or, I think sorry, that was Demetrius year. Harris against Nick Bosa, and that, I think that matchup kind of epitomized the Browns' offense of, of 2019. That's a good place to end this one. Oh, we should try to have a Demetrius Harris reference every week if we can. Yes. Uh, all right. We'll come back very quickly with our final wrap-up. We had an Ellis deep dive. We had a Scott deep dive. We appreciate you guys joining us on Gotta Watch the Tape. We'll be right back after this. All right, back with a quick goodbye on Gotta Watch the Tape. Uh, other quick little things each of us are thinking heading into this Sunday game between the Browns and the Washington football team. Scott, what do you got? You know, one of the hard things about identifying trends after two weeks is that you're not really sure what you're looking at yet because you can have a team like the Browns who looked not so great in week one and looked a lot better in week two. Washington has been a little bit similar. Um, but now with this third game, like basically what I'm telling you is you should listen to the podcast on Tuesday because we're finally going to know stuff. You know, things are going to lean one way or another. And so then we'll be able to kind of identify uh, what the Browns really are doing well and what they really aren't doing well. You know, we can say here and say that, uh, that Wyatt Teller is your Pro Bowl starter at, at guard, uh, but this week I think we're going to maybe be able to say that more definitively because, again, three, three is better than two when you're trying to figure out trends. Ellis, what do you got? Doug, no Browns fan's going to want to hear this, but for me, I'm doing it. I'm saying it. Sunday's a must-win. It's that simple. It is a must-win football game for the Cleveland Browns, and I say that because you have to look at the rest of the schedule. If you want to be a playoff team, and I understand they have the extra spot, whatever, it doesn't matter. To be a playoff team, you've got to beat bad teams at home. It's that simple. And I understand this Washington D's is talented, and Ron Bear is one heck of a coach, but this is an offense that is bottom of the barrel. Uh, Dwayne Haskins, some of his ratings are you know, lower than Baker's, lowest in the league, and it's a game you can't afford to lose because after this, the Browns go to Dallas. Then they're hosting the Colts, who now all of a sudden look like a, a, a verge playoff contender. Then they're at Pittsburgh. I don't need to say any more about that. They're at Pittsburgh. And then they're back to Cincinnati. And that it, it feels like even though the Browns won that game, the momentum was with the Bengals. And I don't think that's necessarily, that's necessarily fair to Cleveland. But that's still, no, there's no easy game on the schedule anymore. And then you wrap up with the Raiders at home November 1st before your bye week. And we saw what the Raiders did Monday night. That's a tough slate of games. This is one you can't afford to miss at, when considering those next five. So Sunday's a must win. And listeners, when you come back and hear us on Tuesday, the result of the game will have to do a lot with my tone. Because if they lose this game, we know the football team in the season we're likely going down. If they win it, they've got an opportune schedule to, to establish themselves as a possible playoff contender. We talked a lot about the Browns offense on this uh, episode of the podcast, the offensive line and the, and the receivers, but I would like to see the Browns defense come out and win this game. So I'm very curious with the guys that are getting back healthy. There was some question. Denzel Ward missed a practice late in the week. What's his status going to be for Sunday? But if you have Greedy Williams back, you have Kevin Johnson back. Um, we've seen Sheldon Richardson play well. Miles Garrett is Miles Garrett. There's some question about Olivier Vernon and Adrian Claiborne for this week, but Washington is not filled with dynamic playmakers offensively. Terry McLaurin's a good player, but Dwayne Haskins is not going to do anything with his legs. He's not going to be a guy who's going to chuck it all over the field. I think maybe this is one of those where you just, maybe the Browns just smother Washington offensively and you give the offensive room to operate. I like it. It's just, it's dumb guy stuff, but I like it when Miles Garrett just dominates. So I feel like maybe there's an opportunity. Dwayne does not move that great. 
I mean, I really like Dwayne Haskins coming out of Ohio State. He is not a mobile dude, especially with the way quarterbacks are developing now in the NFL. This is a chance for the Browns' defense to assert itself. And I think if it does, then, again, that's one of the questions, Scott. We can't tell what's been injuries. We can't tell what's been long-term issues for this defense. We'll have a better sense of this after Sunday. This is got to watch the tape. Tuesdays and Fridays in the Orange and Brown Talk feed. If you want to drop a review in the Orange and Brown Talk feed on Apple Podcasts, sort of tell us what you think about how this is going. Uh, if, you want to, if you're a Browns Tech subscriber and you want to drop a, a message in there, how you think the Gotta Watch the Tape podcast is going, you can follow us on Twitter. Find us there. It's just our names. Ellis is his Book of Ellis. Scott Patsko and I find our names on Twitter. Listen, we, we want feedback. We want to make this podcast for you guys. We think we're having a good, we're having a good time. We want to make sure you guys are having a good time. So, Tuesdays and Fridays. That's going to be the plan going forward. We have two in the books, two out of 2,000, we hope. So thanks for listening to this edition. For Ellis Williams and Scott Patsko, I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.